Hello, Agora Bible Fellowship family. We are so grateful that you are viewing our online service with us today. Man, I just love that these services, they are crossing state lines and everywhere in between. I love that even my family in Canada gets to take a look at these. Well, if you are local to ABF, we do invite you to join us on a Sunday morning. We believe that it is better to be in fellowship as a community. So join us on a Sunday morning as well. Well, there's a few things that I wanted to remind you of. First, is that we have our number 97,000, our texting number, for you to be able to send in your confidential prayer requests. So please feel free to send us a message at any time because our staff, our elders, we consider it a privilege to be praying for you. Well, if you'd like to learn more about what's going on, all the things that are happening here at ABF, we encourage you to go to our website at agorabible.com and check out all the things happening and see how you could get involved. Well, the truth is this ministry and here at ABF, we can't do any of these things without your generous financial contribution. So man, if it is possible, we'd love for you to give a donation. You can go to our website and find the Give tab, and that is an easy way to uh, give a donation. Well, this is a time in our service where we are going to jump in to God's Word. All right. Well, thanks for joining us online. Thank you, Adrian. Excited to just get a, a one more week in of 1 Corinthians before we transition to some more Christmas stuff. We're in that kind of weird limbo state before. Really, Christmas feels like it's full, fully on, but we're past Thanksgiving. And so I thought I'd sneak at least chapter the remainder of chapter uh, 9 in here today. So if you have your Bibles with you or uh, if you like looking at that on your phone, we'd love to uh, walk through these verses. Just chapter, uh, just verses 19 through 27 in chapter 9. And that's where we're going to be beginning uh, you may uh, may or may not know this, but I was kind of missing in action last week. My wife, Adrian, and I were both actually had this uh, chest and uh, head cold kind of bug deal that's going around, a kind of this mutant uh, uh, virus, and uh, it really laid you out. It wasn't quite enough to like be a, a considered a full flu, but enough to just leave you feeling miserable. I hear so many people uh, dealing with that right now or kind of working through some kind of uh, sickness, but it's interesting. You have a lot of downtime when you're sick, a lot of time of introspection. And and my wife, I, I remember just uh, about the middle of last week where we'd had a couple days of just kind of chilling and recovering. And she had asked me, she's just like, man, I have such a hard time just sitting around. And she's like, what's it going to be like when our kids finally move out of the house and it's just me and you? You could almost hear the agony in her voice of like the, the, the idea of just being stuck with me in the house all day. And it's kind of a funny thing, but it got me thinking just about like really so much. If you don't have something that's a, a, a driving passion, something that's compelling you, something that you're called to, something that's motivating you, it would be really easy to come to the exact same conclusion that Solomon did. What did, it, what did he say? After he had experienced all that life had, he said, you know, it's all just kind of meaningless if you don't have something bigger that you're living for. Find it interesting that Martin Luther King Jr. He had made a statement that really is uh, stuck in my mind. It's a famous statement. He said this. He says, "Life isn't worth living 
until you found something worth dying for. It's encouraging that Jesus didn't leave his believers floundering on purpose. And Paul is sharing with us in this section of scripture, just based on his own personal experience, he points to the, the calling that we've all been left with to rescue as many people as possible. Not to settle with what most people in our world are content with, this idea of pursuing happiness. How often you hear somebody just saying, oh, well, I just want to make sure that, that they're happy in life. I hear a lot of times parents, even that's their aspiration for their kids. As long as they grow up and they're happy. You're like, really? That's what you're going to settle for? Well, what a fleeting thing happiness is. I would rather say, I want my kids to grow up and I want them to have purpose and meaning and calling for their life. And that's my prayer for us as a church as well. And that's what we're going to look at here in this section of scripture, being clear on your calling. Let me pray before we explore the text. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to gather around your word and to dig in and to see how Paul was so passionate about something that really matters in this life, something that was worth dying for. It was a consuming thought. It was a consuming drive in his life. God, I would pray that we'd learn from his example and we'd even consider and reflect on our own lives and whether or not that's become a big enough deal, an appropriately large deal in our lives. God, we ask that you'd meet us in this time, that you'd be active and moving. We invite that in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so starting in verse 19 says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So starting off there, I just want to look at that one verse, and that's important what it says right out of the gates, for though I am free from all. So can I speak a little bit about what that freedom looks like, and can I be free in just talking about this subject? Because really after 20 plus years of studying God's word, I've come to some conclusions about what this life is intended to look like. You have a lot of freedom that Christ gives us, as to what we do with our days and our hours and our attention, our affection and all of that. We have the choice to follow and go to follow suit with the rest of the world. And really the rest of the world lives a pretty self-existent or self-centered existence. You can spend your time really focused solely on uh, self-gratification, temporal things, even good temporal things like family, friends, enjoying the beauty of God's creation and the cool stuff that man has made. But unfortunately, this can be the route. And unfortunately, this is the route that so many have a tendency to go. But they're missing the reason God left us on this earth I've already alluded to to rescue as many people as possible from eternal judgment. That's it. I'm going to be honest with you. That's really why everything else, you're like, well, I was left to study God's word and grow in my relationship with him. Yes, that's an important part of this life. But really, these things could happen in heaven. The one thing that's left that we have to, to do on this earth that we can't do in any other period of time is to rescue people that are headed to a Christless eternity in hell. 
Everyone's eternal destiny is literally on the line. So we seem to have some freedom as to how we participate or don't participate in this effort. But in my study of God's word, so you have this, this idea of freedom that's presented. But the more I dig into God's word, I also realize something. That it talks, when it talks about someone that's committed to Jesus Christ, it talks about two defining elements of that person. One defining element is the idea is that their life is marked by love. You can't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you and being submitted to Jesus Christ and not having his love flowing out of you. So one is being marked by love. Two is being marked by obedience to Jesus Christ. So think about that for a second. If those are the two marks of someone that's genuinely saved, somebody that has an authentic faith in Jesus Christ, love and obedience, the first question you have to ask, okay, think about the love thing. If you're living a life where you're not even sharing about Jesus Christ and the rescue that he offers to somebody, can you genuinely say that your life is marked by love? I would question that. Second thing, if you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ and obedience is an integral part of that, the question that I would have, if the main thing that Jesus asked before he left of his disciples, that they would go and make more disciples, if you look at your life and that is nowhere to be found, if it's not even really on the radar, how can you then claim to be, I would ask, a follower of Jesus Christ? It's interesting because scripture is very clear that once saved, you're always saved. But there's a caveat to that in scripture. It often speaks about false conversions. In fact, Jesus' own brother James wrote the entire book of James. And the main focus, do you remember the main focus of that book? Was talking about faith and is talking about the relationship that it has with works. It says, faith without works is, you fill in the blank. It's dead. It has no life to it. Then Jesus himself, when he was sharing with the disciples, when he's sharing with the uh, audiences, he would ask that question. He would say to them, he'd describe it kind of in a parable form. He'd describe about these seeds that were thrown on different soils and some of them would seem to take root and start having life, but then the cares of this world would drown them out. They would be distracted and there would, they would finally fall to their ruin. Those were examples of false conversions. To me, this is an important question. When we're working through topics such as this, what is my calling in my life? What am I intended to be doing? If my life does not align with my calling, there's some questions about whether or not I'm actually called. These are things as your pastor, somebody that genuinely cares about you, wants you to wrestle through. Paul, demonstrating himself, as an example, first he talked about all the things that he sacrificed. Now he's talking about the laser-like focus that he has. And what is the laser-like focus that he has? Is winning more of them. What does that mean, winning more of them? What does winning mean? Basically, the idea here is that he's wanting to see more people rescued with the gospel. 
more and more people coming into a saving relationship because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, more people aware of what was at stake in making an intentional decision to follow Jesus. So what does Paul do to make this happen? What's his strategy? What's his approach? We see that in verse 20. He says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means... I might save some. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is describing his choice to enter in. He's not somebody that's sitting from and watching from a distance. He's choosing to engage with the people that he's trying to desperately reach. He's, he's not adopting, it's not saying, he's not adopting their thinking or their sinful behavior, but instead he's wanting to put himself in a situation where he can be relatable, where he can engage with them and, and connect with them on a, on a similar level. If you think about that as he mentions the different groups, as he's talking about first the Jews, he didn't put himself back under the Jewish law, but most likely he used the law as a point of connection a point of an entry point for the gospel to bring up the fact that we fall short of the ability to, to meet the, pe the perfect standard of the law. So he's found that as a common ground. I'm, think, I'm thinking he's also describing as he's not choosing to uh, go the route of offense. He's thinking through, hey, how can my behavior keep from causing any kind of offense? He's not eating pulled pork sandwiches. He's choosing to engage in a way, in a manner that doesn't offend. I've had many opportunities to be on short-term missions trips. And I think anybody that does missions work understands this reality that Paul's describing. You're sensitive to that. Remember being over in Kenya and they had the expectation for anybody doing ministry or whatever that they'd wear full length dresses, the ladies and men had to wear a, a tie and a jacket. And it's like 110 degrees there and you're trying to, uh, to minister and to reach out. I remember speaking in this open air uh, format, standing on a box and wearing a full uh, blown suit and trying to share. And you're like, you know what? This is me adjusting for the culture, figuring out how to engage and how to have an impact. That's what Paul is saying. I'm sure entering in with the weak he's describing with the Gentiles, those that didn't have the law, his approach would be adjusted based on the audience in which he's trying to meet and minister to. Really, if you think about it, for the follower of Jesus Christ, they're trying to live a life that's really absent of offense, absent of, of offense. Really, if you think about it, there, there's no reason to create new barriers for the gospel because if you think about it, the gospel itself is inherently offensive enough. That's why Paul, even with this attempts to reach out to these different people groups, he was chased out of towns, he was beaten, he was thrown in prison. This didn't always, he didn't always have a re successful response to his efforts, but he was trying as best as it was within his control to meet people 
where they were at. He wanted to, really, I think a, a good word for it is to contextualize the message of the gospel. Think about that. We do that in any kind of education. If you're uh, dealing with a math class, do you remember growing up all the, uh, the, the equations that were outlined and they'd be like, well, Johnny had four apples. He sold three apples to Lucy. How many apples did he still have? It's bringing it into the context that's understandable and relatable. That's where Paul is describing here. He's trying to meet people he was giving us, he was being sensitive. He was having regard. So many people just expect to be able to present truth with not really considering who their audience is. He's adjusting. That's why he says, I've become all things to all people. That's a, a funny verse because a lot of times that's something that somebody uses as an excuse or a green light to really uh, permit, to permit really any kind of debauchery. They're like, well, I do that in order to engage. And you're like, no, that's not an excuse to partake in sinful things, but it's a, a, choose, a choice to, to be able to find ways to uh, connection points with the audience that you're trying to minister to. I like the description here of being culturally relevant, but doctrinally pure culturally relevant, but doctrinally pure. Really, the alternative is you could go the opposite direction of becoming all things to all people. You could swing the pendulum the opposite way. And it's really the version of that is really a, a watered down gospel message, one that's absent of any kind of uh, offense, one that's absent of the idea of sin and consequence, and pending judgment. We see that so often today in mega churches that don't ever bring up those topics, unfortunately. Paul is clear on his mission, and his mission is to meet people where they're at. He continues with this idea in verse 23. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing." You might remember last time I spoke, we're, we're finishing up the section in chapter nine. I talked about how Paul was saying, you know, I, I already, I waived my freedom for income. I waived my freedom for uh, the choice to marry. He's saying, because I've found something of such unbelievable worth and value, I'm willing to leave all those freedoms behind. Do you remember that? I don't know, this, this, this passage here kind of reiterates that same idea. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. In other words, he has something so precious. As I was thinking through that text, I could not resist just to bring to mind that character from the Lord of the Rings, that Gollum character, kind of a creepy guy. But once he had discovered this ring, he, he was just fascinated with it. He was obsessed with it. All, it was all consuming in his life. I don't know if you remember this character, but I was thinking, man, that's a little bit of where Paul is at with the gospel, he's like, man, I do everything for us. He's leaving an example for us to follow that we should run all of the things and be clear for the reason behind everything that we're doing. There's nothing that shouldn't stem from it. Think about any of our acts of service, whether we're serving the poor, whether we're uh, taking care of the elderly, a, a widow, an orphan, whether we're bringing even just a, a meal to somebody that's struggling or going through a, a good time. There should always have the gospel attached to it as the thing that's compelling that. It's not just compelling it so that we look good or we feel good because really, if you think about it, 
Otherwise, you're just serving and meeting short-term needs. Instead, we're wanting to get to the heart of what people desperately need, and what people desperately need is the rescue that only Jesus Christ can offer. I love our partnership with Compassion International. That's a ministry that we work with, and we've gone on to build three different churches now. It's kind of cool to think of those all operating at the time, most likely even this weekend, meeting and ministering to people uh, just consistently because of the faithful giving even of people in this church. But what I like about Compassion is they're like not, they're not just an organization that's taking care of uh, less fortunate kids. I like the, the tagline that they have. They say, releasing children from poverty in Jesus's name. Releasing children from poverty in Jesus's name. There has to be the gospel attached, the offer of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it's just temporary fixes without addressing an eternal issue. That's what he says. And he says the thing that compels this, he wanted to share with them in its blessing, that I may share with them in its blessing. I like that picture. He's saying, man, what I have, what I've been blessed with, I want to be able to bless others with it as well. I want to share this with them. So often when you have something that's precious, that's one of the joys that comes with being able to share with others and bless other people. I watch this guy on occasion uh, on TikTok. I don't know if maybe you've heard of him before. He's a barber and his name is Vic Blends. I'm not confident that that's his uh, birth name, but he kind of basically goes around blessing people with, with haircuts. Strangers often, homeless people often. It's kind of cool because he has all these cool interactions with them. But what I love about it is you would think that he was offering them a million dollars by giving him a haircut, but he's like, yeah, that was just a, a $20 haircut. Actually, his haircuts would be a lot more expensive. But here's the idea. It's like he, he, he's tapped into something there. He's tapped into the idea of the blessing that it is to take something of value and be able to give it to somebody else for free. Now for us, as a follower of Jesus Christ, that's the same idea. Paul's just like, man, my favorite thing is to share in the blessings with other people. That should be part of our mentality as a follower of Jesus Christ, not offering a haircut, but the opportunity to be set free from your, from your sins, being set free from the stuff that has enchained you, set free from an eternity that was uh, destined to be separated from your maker, instead set free and released to a new life in Jesus Christ, an eternity with him. That's what he describes here says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. He continues in verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive perishable, a perishable wreath, but we in an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
Basically, what he's doing here is he's moving into an athletic metaphor. And that's a, uh, one of the things that Paul actually often does to describe a kind of a go-for-broke version of Christianity. He's using the, the picture that they would be familiar with, this idea of calling out every ounce of energy and strength because of the united goal of trying to win a race. For an athlete, for a, a runner, they're like every single aspect of their day revolves around it. Their, their sleep, their diet, their routine, their, their discipline in, the, in, in practicing, all of those things. He's like, man, I don't want any out of shape Christian. I want a follower of Jesus Christ that is fully devoted like me towards the cause of the gospel towards the idea of seeing people, one, eternities, redirected. But here's the reality that we have to remind ourselves in anytime we're talking about doing more work, because you can get into a works mentality, is that the work shouldn't be done in our strength, but in his strength, in the strength that Jesus Christ offers for somebody that's fully devoted and sold out to him. I like what Jerry Bridges, how he describes it, is we want to get to a place where we're 100% dependent and 100% responsible. That blend, that merger between the two with the, the freedom that we have comes responsibility. It's kind of like when you're 18 and you get older and you're just like, oh man, there's all these new responsibilities that I'm entrusted with. The freedom brings. So responsible, but then also at the same time, dependent. So this metaphor of a runner would have made all kinds of sense for those coming and speaking from Corinth. Basically, Corinth was one of the places where they had this massive competition. It's called the Biennial Isthmian Games, which would only have been second to the Olympics in that time period. So as he's describing these athletes, he's doing exactly what he's describing in the text. He's being all things to all people. Because he's meeting them in a, a point, a, a conversation that they would all be familiar with. He describes, as you see in the text, two motivators. One, eternal prize for the temporary, the wreath that he describes there. He's saying the one that we're going after is, a, is eternal. Describes that one, the eternal prize. And then two, the danger of disqualification. Basically, both of those should have some level of thought for any kind of an athlete. They have to think through, man, I want to make sure that I'm intentional with this. I want to make sure that I'm avoiding being disqualified. Ask Lance Armstrong about that. But what do you do with the intentionality? The intentionality means every day starts with that being your primary focus. Let's say going before the Lord and saying, you know what, Lord, here I am. I'm available. Use me. And I want to be intentional in my day to be used. What if our weeks and our days started like that? Just having that mentality. All right, God, man, I want to be used. I want to have the, the gospel. I want to be ready with it. I had a cool opportunity uh, just last week. There's a, a woman in our church. Her name is Dawn, and uh, she's an avid pickleball player. And she invited me to go do this co-ed pickleball thing over at the uh, Westlake uh, Tennis Club, I think it's called. And so it was fun to go over there. But it was really neat to behind the scenes 
to see her a little bit in action, engaging with the different people there. She knew everybody's name. She, had, she was very aware of things that were going on in people's lives. She paused in one of the games to check in with a woman that she knew uh, was connected with somebody having surgery. Another woman she's talking to, she's like, yeah, I wanted to make sure you, you're still able to come to the Christmas cafe. I have a ticket for you. And she's like, I don't know what it's gonna be like, but I'm sure it's gonna be awesome. It's just neat to see the intention that she even approached those engagements, those relationships. I'm like, I think that's it. That's, that's what Paul's getting at. Having a, a runner's mentality that, uh, that uh, hey, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna miss an opportunity to keep moving forward with this intentional cause. So for us, if it's based on intentionality, what grade would you give yourself as it relates to this topic? What grade would you say, yes, man, I am a, I'm a runner ready to go. What is often the way that you grade yourself is like, well, how often do I run? A am I getting after? Is it part of my routine? Is it part of a regular uh, equation in my life? I read this columnist by the name of Herb Cohen wrote this week, or not this week, but wrote in the San Francisco, Fran San Francisco Chronicle. He said, every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning, a lion wakes up. It knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. It doesn't matter whether you're a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you'd better be running. I like that picture as it relates to a follower of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you've been gifted and you're talented in all of this, you're like, hey, that's, that's great. Or you're somebody that's like, no, this doesn't necessarily come natural to me. The intention is for us to just be running, to be trying, to, to try different approaches, to see how God can use you, to make yourself available. And I am confident that God will have you in the game. And that's the last thing that we'd want is we want to be sideline Christians, watching other people live this meaningful, significant life. And you sitting back and just being on the bench and you're just like, man, I'm just not really doing anything. Man, that's a, that would be such a shame to get the end of your days and never have gotten into the game. I had an interesting opportunity a few years back. I had a, a chance to, over at Hillcrest Christian School, they had asked me to uh, coach their seventh, eighth grade basketball team. And I was uh, excited about that because my son Chase was on the team. And, but really discovering that most of the kids out of the 10 players had literally never played basketball before. So I had like two weeks to figure out how to get kids that had never played basketball to be a place where they're ready to play in competitive uh, games. It was quite the interesting uh, feat. We didn't have a lot of wins, we'll say, that season. But I remember one point looking down as, uh, as you're down by 30 points, you're like, well, at least I got to get all of the kids in the game. And I remember looking down the bench and seeing at the end of the bench, one kid sitting there reading books about, a book about dinosaurs. I'm like, are you serious? Like, are you, are you ready to go? And I, I asked him if he wanted to play. He's like, no, I'm okay. Thank you. I was just like, man, that's a, a pretty sad place to be on a basketball team, but you're busy just reading the book, never ever getting in the game. And I started thinking about that as the wheels are turning, as it relates to the life of following Jesus. So many people get busy just reading the book, reading more and more details, but never getting in the game. 
That's not the life that Paul is calling us to live. He's calling us to, to be actively involved and engaged in this unified mission. So let me just end just with a couple just practical things that you could try this week. If you're like, man, I've never really engaged in this. Just a few things that are habits that could be put in place. The first one I already alluded to, starting your day and saying, all right, Lord, today, how can you use me to reach somebody with the love of Jesus Christ? And as you're going in the day, for that to already be on your heart, on your mind, that, that mentality. Second thing, that anybody that has learned anything about evangelism is be somebody throughout the day that's looking to engage with people, asking questions, getting to know people, what their, what their likes are, their interests, things that are going on, the, what surgery they have coming up, what sickness they're getting over, being aware and familiar with people and what's happening in their life. I think that would be a great start to an evangelistic effort. It's just genuine, genuine engagement with people showing concern. Then, secondly, being ready if the opportunity arises to move one of those questions towards spiritual things and being ready to share from your experience, your engagement with God, how he's changed and redirected your life, being willing to speak up and take a risk looking awkward in front of somebody. That's the idea here. But then after speaking, when you're speaking, not looking to get into some kind of an argument. Sometimes people think that sharing Christ has to be a debate with somebody. If it's moving towards a debate, it's not going well. Abort, abort. You're not going to win somebody to Jesus Christ because you had a better argument than them. You're wanting to present truth and then give opportunity for people to respond, for it to be a conversation, not an assault. That's an important thing, especially for those of us that are online, especially for that person that's the, the keyboard warrior. Do not send things to get and engage in debate. And then lastly with that, is I'd say as you're going into your week, just being patient. As you have a little opportunity, slowing down, asking the Lord to do a work behind the scenes, partnering with him in this. What I love about Paul as it relates to this topic is he doesn't come in with a, a big hammer saying, you need to do this, you need to do this. But instead, he chooses to just share his life and his passion. I don't want to try to uh, use guilt to inform you on this because guilt is a lousy motivator. I would rather be pointing and looking at an example of one who is doing it and for you to be compelled by that and adopt it for yourself. I don't want anyone here to settle for a happy life. I want us to, to strive for more, for an effective ministry of impacting lives and seeing eternities redirected. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this chance to be in your word. And we thank you so much for this example of someone that was compelled by the gospel, compelled so much, they'd give up their rights, they'd give up their freedoms, they'd, they'd give up the pursuit of the things of this world just for the sake of sharing in the prize, the prize of seeing lives changed radically redirected because of the truth of the gospel. I pray that that would take hold in many of our, uh, I would say every single heart and life of our audience listening around now. 
We thank you, God, again for this chance to be in your word. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great day.